0: What is singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes what is the monkey doing he hit your face off We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales if i show weakness if i retreat i may be hurt i may be killed baby azaria chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980 to man it is the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals my name's jimby and i'm here to say it's time to end the year in a lazy way that's right <laughs> we're doing a best of episode in fact we're doing two best of episodes to cap off the the, the year that has been 2022 an absolute dumpster fire of a year but a pretty good year for this here podcast, you know, this little podcast going from strength to strength, and I want to thank you for it, and the Christmas present that I've decided to give you is me having two weeks off whilst you get to listen to some old episodes. Does that sound good? Am I selling this badly to you? Well, it doesn't matter. It is the end of 2022. And uh, like many of you, I'm sure, um, you know, I'm tired. I'm I'm exhausted. A little life update. I've recently moved houses again. So that's the second move of the year. Um, I've just finished doing a theater show. Thank you for everyone who came to see Ideation in Newcastle. Really appreciated that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a massive year. It's time to wind back. And it's also a time to reflect and look back on the year that was. Uh, and what better way to do that with, an, with a best of episode, not just the best of 2020, but also including the best of 2021. This podcast started in, I think, August of 2021. So there's about six or seven episodes from uh, 2021 that we're going to have a look back as, at as well. So I've decided to you know select about five episodes um, that we're going to look back on and again, you're probably going to hear some audio changes today as well in this recording because I've got my new little podcast set up almost done. Not really. It, it's a work in progress, but you might hear it. I'm sure that when you go back and listen to these earlier episodes, you will notice um, quite, a, quite a substantial difference. So we're going to take a, a listen back. Let's jump in our time machine. We're going to listen to a few episodes starting with uh, episode, I believe episode two of Man Eaters, The Grizzly Man and Bear 141, a really good episode, Um, you know, the primary source for that episode was uh, the Grizzly Man documentary by Werner Herzog, if you haven't listened to it or watched it yet, I definitely think you should, Um, but a lot of the information that you're about to hear is from that documentary, so yeah, let's dive into The Grizzly Man and Bear 141, episode 2 of Man Eaters, all the way back in I believe September of 2021, let's hear what that was about. If there was one animal that I I personally would not want to come across in the wild, um, it would be a grizzly bear or any kind of bear, really. You know, I know that like sharks and crocodiles, you know, maybe they're objectively more terrifying just because you're in the water. But look, something about bears really gets me. I mean, they're maybe it's because they're also adorable. I don't know, that could be it. But anyway, uh, welcome to Man Eaters. Uh, this is a podcast it's a it's a true crime podcast but all the murderers are animals that's the best way i think to describe what this show is Um, my name's james and of course uh, we talk about um, man-eating animals animal attacks and uh, basically any situation where animals and humans come into uh, combat with each other Um, we are talking about a very well-known animal attack today uh, and a very um, well-known man-eating bear Uh, this is the story of the grizzly man now this was made into a uh, very well received um, documentary in the early 2000s by Werner Herzog, um, I believe in 2005. Uh, I'll get a little bit more into who this person was. um, But this documentary includes hours of footage that this person shot himself. Um, This person was a person who spent Years and years and years with with bears and dedicated their life to to their protection. Um, so yeah, let's let's just jump straight into the story today. Um, this is Timothy Treadwell, aka the Grizzly Man, and his encounter, his fatal encounter with a bear known as Bear One Four One. So yeah, enjoy the story. <laughs> Timothy William Dexter was born in 1957 in Long Island, New York. His father was a foreman for construction sites owned by a phone company, and he was one of five children who lived in relative comfort in middle American suburbia. A B-grade student, Timothy was well-liked and personable, and got along well with adults and children alike. He shared an affinity for animals with his mother, and he kept a pet squirrel named Willie, which his mother claimed was his best friend as a child. In high school he enjoyed swimming and became the captain of the school's dive team. He received a scholarship for diving but soon injured his back and lost that scholarship. He moved back home and became depressed. His parents said he was searching for a new start. He started smoking weed and hanging out with people that his parents didn't approve of. Around 1977, at the age of about 20, he moved to California to become an actor. He got an agent, changed his last name to Treadwell, an audition for several well-known TV shows. He won a part on an episode of The Love Connection and was screen-tested for the role of Woody Boyd in Cheers. The role eventually went to Woody Harrelson, but allegedly, Timothy was second in line. Losing this role caused him to spiral. His father and his friends said that it almost destroyed him. Soon after this time, he had a near-fatal heroin overdose and the doctors prescribed him with antidepressants. Timothy refused to take them as he said it numbed his enjoyment of his life. Friends and colleagues said that Timothy was so desperate to create a new identity for himself, he started telling people he was actually an orphan from Australia, although according to one close friend, his accent was more like a Kennedy than an Australian. After discussing his plans for the future and his love for wildlife, a friend recommended he travel to Alaska to watch the bears. After his first encounter with a wild grizzly bear, He wrote that he had found his calling in life and that his destiny was now entwined with the bears. He was right. Treadwell studied the bears during the summer seasons for 13 years between 1990 and 2003. Treadwell broke his visits to Alaska into two parts. In the early months of each season, he camped on the Big Green, an open area in Hallow Bay in the Katmai Coast. He called the area the Grizzly Sanctuary. During the latter part of each summer, he would move to Keflea Bay, and camp in an area of a thick bush he called the Grizzly Maze. Here, the chances of crossing paths with wild bears was much higher, since the location intersected with bear trails. Treadwell was well known for getting extremely close to the bears he observed, sometimes even touching them and playing with bear cubs. He habitually named the bears he encountered and consistently saw many of the same bears each summer, so he claimed to build a strong standing relationship with them. Timothy was repeatedly warned by the park service against his behaviour with the bears. Tom Smith, a research ecologist with the Alaskan Science Centre, said that Treadwell was breaking every park rule there was, in terms of distance to the bears, harassing wildlife, and interfering with natural processes. Right off the bat, his personal mission was at odds with the Park Service. As Timothy's career progressed, he became more and more paranoid and hostile of the Park Service and people in general. Treadwell often claimed to be alone with the wildlife on several occasions in his videos. However, his girlfriend, Amy Huguenard, was with them during parts of the last three summers and at the time of their deaths. By 2001, Treadwell had gained notoriety and was something of a celebrity. He visited schools to talk to students about his experiences with bears and he appeared on several high-profile television programs including the Discovery Channel, Late Night with David Letterman and Datelight NBC to discuss his adventures. He also co-wrote Among Grizzlies, Living with Wild Bears in Alaska with Jewel Palavic, his co-worker who he lived with for 20 years. This book describes Treadwell's adventures on the Alaskan Peninsula. Treadwell and Palovic founded Grizzly People, an organization devoted to protecting bears and preserving their wilderness habitats. In October 2003, Treadwell and his girlfriend Amy, a physician's assistant, visited Katmai National Park. Treadwell and Huguenard's diaries indicated that she was afraid of the bears and was vocal about leaving the expedition early. Treadwell set his campsite near a salmon stream where wild bears commonly feed in the autumn. Treadwell was in the park later in the year than normal, at a time where bears attempt to gain as much fat as possible before the winter. Food was scarce that autumn, causing the bears to be even more aggressive than usual. Treadwell and Huguenard were to leave the park at his usual time of year, and had actually returned to Kodiak on September 26 to store their gear for the season and to catch a connecting flight back to their home in California. However, after an argument with the airline ticketer over the price of altering his return ticket. Treadwell and Amy made the decision to return to their campsite on September 29th for an additional week. The bears he had been used to during the summer had already gone into hibernation, and more aggressive bears that Treadwell did not know from other parts of the park were moving into the area. Some of the last footage taken by Treadwell, hours before his death, includes a video of a bear diving into the river repeatedly for a piece of dead salmon. This is a sign of food desperation in brown bears. Treadwell mentioned in the footage that he did not feel entirely comfortable around that particular bear. In the documentary Grizzly Man, Werner Herzog speculates on whether Treadwell filmed the very bear that killed and ate him. Around noon on Sunday October 5th 2003, Treadwell spoke with an associate in Malibu, California by sat phone. Treadwell mentioned no problems with any bears. The next day, October 6, Willie Fulton, a Kodiak Air taxi pilot, arrived at Treadwell and Huguenard's campsite to pick them up, but found the area abandoned, except for a bear, and contacted the local park rangers. The couple's mangled remains were discovered quickly upon investigation. Treadwell's disfigured head, partial spinal cord, and right forearm and hand, with his watch still on and ticking away, were recovered a short distance from the camp. Amy's partial remains were found next to the torn and collapsed tents, partially buried in a mound of twigs and dirt. A large male bear, tagged and previously designated as Bear 141, protected the campsite and was killed by park rangers during their attempt to retrieve the bodies. A second adolescent bear was also killed a short time later, when a charge at park rangers. An on-site post-mortem of Bear 141 revealed human body parts such as fingers and limbs. The younger bear was consumed by other animals before it could be examined. A video camera recovered at the site proved to have been operating during the attack, but police say that the six-minute tape contained only the voices and cries as a brown bear mauled Treadwell to death. The tape begins with Treadwell yelling that he's being attacked. Come out here, I'm being killed out here, he screams to Amy. That the tape contained only sounds led the troopers to believe the attack might have happened while the camera was stuffed in a duffel bag or during the night. In Grizzly Man, Werner Herzog claims that the lens cap of the camera was left on, suggesting that Treadwell and Huguenard were in the process of setting up for another video sequence when the attack happened. This, however, was enough time to record the bear's initial attack on Treadwell and his agonized screams. His retreat after Huguenard tells Treadwell to play dead and when she attacked it with a frying pan and its return to carry Treadwell off into the forest. Charlie Russell, a bear expert, worked with Treadwell. Russell advised Treadwell to carry pepper spray and use electric fences. He initially refrained from commenting on Treadwell after he was killed, but after Grizzly Man was released, he wrote a lengthy critique of Treadwell's failure to follow basic safety precautions. In spite of his criticism of Treadwell, Russell praised him for his devotion to bears and his ability to remain alive for so long. He defended him against the people who criticised his work, writing If Timothy had spent those 13 years killing bears and guiding others to do the same, eventually being killed by one, he would have been remembered in Alaska with great admiration. According to the organisation Treadwell founded, Grizzly People, five bears were poached in the year following his death, while none had been poached while he was present in Katmai National Park. Some of his ashes were spread at his last known campsite by his friends, co workers, and pilot. The following is a clip from the Grizzly Man documentary that Treadwell recorded years before his death. Knowing the context in which it's played now, it seems like it's almost a chilling prediction. And that these bears can bite, they can kill. And if I am weak, I go down. I love them with all my heart, I will protect them, I will die for them. But I will not die at their claws and paws. I will fight, I will be strong, I'll be one of them, I will be... The master Still a kind warrior <laughs> Love you rowdy and There you have it guys, that's the story of Timothy Treadwell aka the grizzly man um, who came to a almost almost appropriate grizzly ending. Um, I had a lot of feelings when researching this this story. I watched the documentary, um, which by the way, you should absolutely watch. It goes into way more depth than I possibly could in this format. Um, it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing documentary. It's all on YouTube, you can watch it for free. Uh, it's just called Grizzly Man, directed by uh, Werner Herzog, who I can't listen to without him without reminding me of, like, him wanting to see the baby in The Mandalorian. Um, yeah, so, this guy, Timothy Treadwell, right, he's, he's a very complicated person, um, he, he clearly loved what he did, he clearly respected the bears, but I think that he respected them almost too much, right? Like, he respected them to a point where he didn't respect them anymore, um, in the documentary, um, they talk to a Native American guy who says, you know, for 7,000 years, there's been this relatively harmonious relationship between people and, and bears. They stay out of their way and we stay out of their way. Uh, we stay of their way and they stay out of our way. Um, ours meaning people. Um, and then people like Timothy come along and interact with the bears and, um, are friendly with the bears. And this conditions the bears to potentially think that that's what all people are like, you know, and so the next person comes along, and a bear gets a bit too friendly, and maybe bites them, um, and then that bear gets shot, and all the bears around it get shot as well because of some weird vindictive hunt that the people go on. So, you know, it's not necessarily a great thing. Um, he. It, it, it's interesting as well, that there was a pilot, I think not the pilot that he knew that picked him up, but another pilot that was involved in the, the cleanup of the remains from the campsite, who essentially said that one of the reasons he think he survived for so long with the bears is that he acted so bizarrely for a person that the bears might've just thought there was something wrong with him. Um, he uses a derogatory word, <laughs> um, but I'm just gonna say mentally challenged. Uh, that's potentially what the bears thought Timothy was. Now I, I don't know all about that. I think that, um to be honest, I think he just got lucky. You watch all this footage of the guy with these bears, and he he really seemed to not be in control of the situations at all. Like at any moment, a bear could turn around and maul him to death. And th- there were some close calls too. They like would come up to him, and he would, you know, talk them off. And it was almost like they 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 didn't engage just out of because they were bored by him. But if there was any reason to attack they would have and they did obviously in the the end as well um one thing you note as well is that the longer he stayed out there um the less attached to the human world he became and he talked many many times about how he hated human civilization he was really upset about upset by by it and um he becomes more and more uh disassociated with humanity as he goes on um there are clips of him just going on these weird weird rants about the the park service and how he saved the bears and they he beat the park service the park service wants to get him there's footage of him spying on um other campers in the in the park and being really paranoid you know um at one point a bear approaches this group of campers and they throw rocks at the bear to scare him off which i think is a really pretty fair thing to do and you hear Timothy Treadwell in the background while he's filming, crying, and being really upset that that happened, which is kind of understandable, but then you also see the campers left him a note, so they obviously knew who he was, probably because he was pretty famous for being there, they left a note on a, on a tree stump that just said, or not a tree stump, on a, on a log, that just said, um, hi Timothy, see you next year, which you would think would be pretty friendly, Timothy read that and took it as a threat, like he was... <laughs> He's, he said it, these are almost his exact words it's not a message like hey we're gonna freaking kill you it's more creepy than that and then he also found a rock with a smiley face on it as well uh, which he took as, again as a threat so he he, he kind of became a little bit unhinged i mean he, there's footage of him like following a bear and after the bear defecates he just walks up and picks and, and starts rubbing the poo uh, and he's so like enthralled that this feces was inside the bear moments ago it's it's truly a little bit bizarre, um, so, you know, he, he, wasn't all there, um, so he obviously was a victim, but he kind of, he put himself in a situation, and I think that he would not, he wouldn't be upset that this happened, like, he, he understood what he was doing, I think, and I don't think he would be terribly shocked to learn that this had happened, um, especially since he, had realized you know in in his last camp that things weren't going well you know that he'd he'd returned later in the year than he was used to the bears that he saw weren't ones that he knew and weren't ones that were acclimated with him um there was a food scarcity going on so the animals were becoming more and more um aggressive and desperate for, for food um but the one thing that really sort of is really sad for me is that he dragged his girlfriend into it Um, And this this woman, um, we don't know a lot about her. She's barely in any of the footage. There's a hundred hours of footage that they found uh, of Timothy that that he took. And she only appears twice. In one shot, uh, it's from really far away and we don't get to see her face. And in the second one, it's from around the time she died. um, There's a bear approaching them and they're both standing really still and it's very tense and you can tell that she's terrified. And again, you don't really get to see her face, so we don't know much about Amy, um, but it is just sad that she got roped into it, and she ultimately died as well. The, um, the footage, well not footage, the audio tape, um, that was recorded, apparently is so horrific that only a couple people have listened to it, so the coroner listened to it, and he, well, firstly, he's a bit of a weirdo, if you watch the documentary, maybe you know what I think, he seems like a bit of a weirdo, um. But yeah, like he listened to it and he describes the screams as really like terrifying. And uh, yeah. And then the other person who listened to it was, um, was Werner Herzog, the director of the documentary. And you, we get to watch him listen to it live. We don't hear what it is, but we watch his reaction. And he starts crying. And it's really weird to see a man like Werner Herzog, who is absolutely terrifying, <laughs> crying you know and he takes the tape and, f- and he says to uh, I think it was Jewel I can't remember her last name off the top of my head but the woman who he worked with for 20 years and he says you should not listen to this don't listen to this um, I think you should destroy the tape if you live with it in your house it'll, it'll eat at you don't ever listen to this and apparently she never has there are um, some clips on YouTube that claim to be the audio clip um, they sound horrific there's no way to verify if they are real um, some of the comments say yes, it's real, some say no, it's not. Um, one of the clips that I listened to did seem to be accurate at least to what people describe it to be like some of the wor- some of the lines that um, the coroner said were in it pop up again. but again, it-, it could be a fake or a recreation. Either way, it's horrific and I actually was planning on putting it into the podcast today, but I, th- I decided against it it's a little bit too too messed up, so, anyway, (laughs) that's the story of the Grizzly Man and uh, Bear 141, Um, and there you have it, Grizzly Man and Bear 141, a really fascinating story, Um, just listening back on that, I, it takes me back to, you know, being in my old, old house, um, watching that apartment, watching that video on YouTube, because the whole documentary is on YouTube, um, and yeah, taking notes on that and really learning about this guy, Timothy Treadwell, who's, um, yeah, you know, a, a very interesting fellow whose, uh, I guess, obs- obsessions, um, and I guess he was kind of delusional as well, kind of led him to destruction um, as well as his as his girlfriend, which is really sad. Um, the the fact that I take away from that story, it's a very small one but a very surprising one, is how this kid, this guy, was almost on cheers. He almost was Woody Harrelson's role, Uh so it's it, you know it's hard to imagine looking through Woody Harrelson's filmography, you know, No Country for Old Men or you know, True Detective, um, and instead of it being Woody Harrelson, you got this fucking idiot. Timothy Treadwell, but yeah, there you go, quite quite a fascinating episode, we're going to skip forward a little bit more, um, this next episode, I'm going to go back and have a little looky-loo to see when this was, um, but we're going to talk about Tilikum the killer whale, Tilikum the orca, again the primary source for this episode um, was another documentary, this time the documentary Blackfish, yeah, episode seven, Tilikum the Killer Whale. It's from October 29th, 2021. So that was the day before my birthday in 2021. So uh, let's let's dive on into it. Um, that's that's a joke, it's a pun, I guess, because it's about a way. Wh- Listen to the episode. We are discussing a uh, recent, uh, I guess I would say a recent animal attack um, or animal attacks surrounding a killer whale named Tilikum. Uh, my main source today is uh, the documentary Blackfish, which is available uh on Stan I think it was Stan I watched it on um but you can rent it on YouTube as well uh Blackfish I think released in 20 20- 2013 um a really well made documentary it was pretty critically cl- pretty acclaimed when it was released um has some fantastic uh it goes into some really good detail um which I couldn't really get into today on today's episode for the for the podcast so if you have time I really recommend giving giving Blackfish a listen um just want to stay up front that Blackfish also had some attractors some criticism leveled at it um some of the seaworld trainers who were interviewed in the documentary said that it was different to what they thought that what they were expecting that they had some of their words twisted around um just want to say that up front that it's not a hundred a hundred percent an unimpeachable source um However, the details that I took from it for this episode, for this script, um, were things that were based on video footage that really can't be denied. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it, these aren't really opinions that I'm saying. These are things that uh, were were included in the documentary that uh, have been proven to be true, and I've you know, left out any, anything that, you know, any opinions of trainers that couldn't be 100% backed up. Uh, yeah. So having said that, you know, this has been a really cool episode to research. Orca are far more interesting creatures than I had, uh, you know, given them credit for in the past. But after hours of watching footage of, you know, killer whales, I still, and this is like a 28 year long problem for me. I still think that the white patches on their head are their eyes. (laughs) Like, they look like Venom from, from the Spider-Man comic books. Um, no, the, the white patches on their head are just patches. Their eyes, you can see them. They're just black and, you you know, they're camouflaged to the rest of their body. I, every time I see a killer whale, I just go, oh, yeah, those are their eyes. They have massive white, uh, stupid patterned eyes. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's just, I guess, my own stupidity. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. If you're the same and you thought that the white patches on a killer whale were eyes, or, you know, at least your first instinct is to think their eyes I guess let me know um and oh a, a place you can let me know by the way and I can't believe it's taken this long to mention this is uh, my Instagram you can follow me on Instagram at jimothychaps I've been asking a lot of um questions like poll questions on my Instagram story about like what um what stories I should cover next I think recently I asked if people would be more interested in the leopards of Pinar or the wolves of Ashtar um I think people thought the Wolves were a more interesting story. I mean, I'm going to cover all these stories eventually, um, but, you know, it's good to know what you guys are interested in, and uh, that's sort of the order I'll release things. Uh, you know, a good example of that is this episode. I asked if people would be more interested in uh, Tilikum the Whale, or Tilikum the Killer Whale, rather, or The Great Emu War. And I was surprised. I thought The Great Emu War would be the, uh, the you know... Definite pick for a lot of people because it's a bit of a meme, um, but no people were more interested in comes So uh, I'm going to do the the Emu War episode after this. Um, by the way, I'm going to record these two episodes back to back as well. So if you hear rain in the background, it's because there's a massive storm going on. But it's Freedom Day in New South Wales tomorrow. Tomorrow is the 11th of October. Lockdown is over for, for the majority of the citizens in New South Wales, so I know that I'm just going to get thrust back into the real world after this. So my goal was to have uh, you know, at least eight episodes recorded, done and dusted, and scheduled into the feed um, so I didn't have to worry for a few weeks so that I could get snowed back under with work and stuff. So yeah, if you hear anything um, similar in both episodes, that's why, a little bit of behind the scenes trivia for you. Anyway, I feel like this intro has gone on way too long, so let's cut that out and uh, jump straight into the story of Tillicum the Killer Whale. <laughs> Tilikum was an Icelandic orca, born in approximately December of 1981. Orca, better known as killer whales, are toothed whales belonging to the oceanic dolphin family, of which it is the largest species. Recognizable by its distinct black and white patterned body, orca are considered one of the most socially intelligent animals on the planet, in many ways surpassing even humans. Orca can be found in every ocean on Earth and a variety of marine environments, from freezing Arctic and Antarctic regions to tropical seas near the equator. Tilikum was captured when he was two years old, along with two other young whales from his pod in 1983 near Reykjavik in Iceland. Tilly, as he became known, spent around a year in a marine park in Hafnarfjör, which I guarantee I'm pronouncing incorrectly, before being transferred to Sealand of the Pacific in Oak Bay, Canada. Sealand of the Pacific was a public aquarium which was part of the Oak Bay Marina from 1969 until 1992. Over its history, it housed 11 different orca. At Sealand, Tilikum was placed in an enclosure with two other older female whales named Haida 2 and Nootka 4. Orca have a matriarchal society and as such, Tilikum was abused by the other two whales. Aside from being a different sex to the other whales, Tilikum was also from another part of the world. It's important to understand that orca are very social animals and behave and communicate differently depending on where they are from. For example, a whale from Iceland will have a different quote-unquote language than a whale from New Zealand. This also contributed to them ostracizing him. This abuse included the female orca raking his skin. This is when whales drag their teeth along another whale's body, causing deep scratches and cuts. Workers at Sealand described Tilikum's whole body being covered in rake marks in certain points of his life. In the wild, a male orca would steer clear of the females and stay on the outside of their pod. But due to the extreme small pools that the whales were being kept in, Tilikum did not have this option of giving Haida to and Nootka for some space. At night, the three whales were herded into a smaller, steel shelter that would become completely dark. This was due to fears that animal rights activists would sneak into the open air slash open water enclosures and open the gates, releasing the orca into the ocean. The staff at Sealand recount feeling upset, forcing Tilikum into such a small, dark enclosure with other whales they knew would bully and abuse him. Tilikum lived in these conditions without a major incident until 1991. On February 20th, 1991, 21-year-old marine biology student Kelty Byrne slipped and fell into the pool containing Tilikum, Haida and Nootka while working as a part-time trainer at Sealand. As soon as she entered the water, Tilikum charged and grabbed Byrne, pulling her to the bottom of the pool. The orca dragged Kelty around the pool and repeatedly prevented her from surfacing. Other staff members tried to interfere by throwing her life rings, but the other two whales prevented them from entering the water to rescue her. At one point, Kelty managed to reach out to the side of the pool and attempted to climb out, but Tilikum pulled her back into the pool. She surfaced three times before drowning. It was several hours before her body could be recovered from the bottom of the pool. Sealand said that it was impossible to know which of the whales had instigated the attack, but eyewitnesses claimed that it was definitely Tilikum. They could identify him by his collapsed dorsal fin, which they had learned about during the show that they saw while attending Sealand. Dorsal fin collapse occurs in nearly all captive male orca. According to these witnesses, it was Tilikum who attacked and dragged Kelty to the bottom of the pool while the other two whales circled and watched. Not long after this event, Sealand of the Pacific was closed and SeaWorld purchased the orcas. Tilikum was moved to SeaWorld Orlando on January 9, 1992. The staff at SeaWorld knew all about the incident with Kelty Byrne, but were not told that Tillicum was the whale responsible for her death. During his time at SeaWorld, Tillicum experienced significantly better conditions than at Sealand. However, in 1999, another incident occurred. On January 6, 1999, 27-year-old Daniel P. Dukes was found dead and naked, splayed over Tillicum's back in his sleeping pool. Dukes had visited the park earlier that day and had evaded security to stay after the park had closed. He then stripped down naked and entered Tillicum's tank unclothed. Despite numerous above and below water cameras in and near Tillicum's tank, Seawold claims the event was not captured on video. An autopsy found that his cause of death was drowning, but also noted that his body was covered in wounds, contusions, abrasions, and that his genitals had been bitten off, allegedly by Tillicum. Eleven years later, in 2010, Tillicum took yet another life. On February 24th, Dawn Branchow, a veteran marine animal trainer, was performing the Dime Shamoo show with Tilikum. In this show, the audience would eat at an open-air restaurant while watching an orca perform tricks with a trainer. During this show, while performing a trick where Tilikum would circle the tank and wave at the audience, Tilikum either missed, didn't hear, or ignored a whistle that was his cue to stop the trick and return. After completing another lap of the pool, he returned to Branch Out expecting fish as a reward for him completing the trick. Dawn did not reward him due to him missing the recall whistle. From this point on, the whale appeared to lose enthusiasm for the performance and the trainers who have watched the footage of this show note that Tilikum seemed frustrated. After the show, during a cool-down bonding session, Tilikum grabbed Branchow and pulled her to the bottom of the pool. SeaWorld claimed that he grabbed her by the ponytail, which she was not supposed to have. It was not regulation and it should have been up in a bun. Some witnesses, however, claimed that she was actually grabbed on the wrist or the shoulder. The Orca's move seemed to have been very quick, pulling her underwater and drowning her. At least several patrons witnessed Branchow in the water with Tilikum. Employees used nets and threw food at Tilikum in an attempt to distract him. Moving from pool to pool in the complex, they eventually directed Tillicum into a smaller medical pool where it was easier for them to calm him. After uh, approximately 45 minutes, Tillicum released Branchow's body. Orange County Fire Rescue. Uh, 6600 Sea Harbour Drive. Okay. Um, sea World, my fortune. Okay, and where's the patient located inside the They park? are at Shamu Stadium we actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales the whale that they're not supposed to be in the water with okay so we don't know what's going on um we were just told to call and have people here on standby when they get the person out okay and do you know if so you don't know if the person was injured or if they're having a medical problem no idea okay very well I i don't even think they're out of the water yet they're still in there with the whale so Okay, but someone is unseen, and they are getting them out of the water now. There are people working on it, yes. So okay. about two, three dozen people over there right now. All right, we'll get somebody in route. Okay, and through gate number three to Shamu Stadium. Gate three. Gate three. All right, got it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Fire rescue. Hi, this is um, SeaWorld, I just called. Uh-huh. Can you let them know that they pulled the AED? Say what? They pulled the defibrillator. Also, oh. for that they're coming to SeaWorld for. They just pulled it. Out of the box. I just got an alarm. Okay. Alrighty. man. Uh, you haven't got any more information about what's going no, on. No, I though. don't, no. They're still working. Oh, okay, very good. Thanks for the additional. Right. We'll pass it on, to. Okay. All right, thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye. Right. Bye. On a the emergency. The 6600 Sea Harbor Drive. This is SeaWorld again. Okay. Um, they're going to go ahead and bring them in the park. Can you let them know? Okay. They're going to. They're going to bring the vehicles into the park. Okay. I'll let. My guys. are waiting for them at gate three. Okay. Gate three. Already. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Bye right, bye. Right, the autopsy report said that Branchout died from drowning and blunt force trauma. Her spinal cord was severed and she had sustained fractures to her jawbone, ribs, and a cervical vertebra. Her scalp was completely torn from her head, and her left elbow and left knee had been dislocated. Immediately after this event, SeaWorld prohibited trainers from entering the water with Orca. This echoed similar orders that were given after trainers had been injured by animals, but these protocols were often temporary and usually reversed. This time, however, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, solidified this ban by intervening. There was a lengthy court case to decide whether or not Seaworld was in any way at fault for the death of Dawn Branchow. The court was scathing in its assessment of Seaworld's expert Mr Andrews' opinion that, quote, grabbed Miss Branchow by the hair out of curiosity because he was unfamiliar with it, as quote-unquote speculative and having no basis in fact. The court criticised Seaworld's closed system of logic which blamed trainers for their injuries by a forward circularity of reasoning whereby, quote, Seaworld believes it conditions all aspects of behaviour. All behaviour is thus predictable. If an undesired behaviour occurs, it is because the trainer missed a known precursor. Ergo, the trainer is always at fault for the killer whale's undesirable behaviour. In this closed system, any injury sustained by a trainer will always be traceable to human error, It is not the operant conditioning program that is inadequate, it is the performance of the trainer that is flawed. The court ultimately ruled against SeaWorld and banned all in-water performances with Orca. SeaWorld has filed several appeals against this decision claiming that since the Shamu performance was its star attraction, in-water performances with Orca is integral to its business. In 2014, the US Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia denied a petition for review, with Brett Kavanaugh being the sole judge to side with SeaWorld. Brett Kavanaugh, a judge, lover of beer, and accused sexual assaulter, would later become a Trump-appointed Supreme Court Justice. Kavanaugh also said of Branch to be fearless, courageous, tough, to perform a sport or activity at the highest levels of human capacity, even in the face of known physical risk, is among the greatest forms of personal achievement for many who take part in these activities. Branch is one of only two animal trainers to be killed by killer whales. The other is Alexis Martinez, a trainer from Loro Park's Orca Ocean in the Canary Islands, who was killed only two months prior to dawn. On Christmas Eve 2009, Alexis was killed by an orca named Keto that was on loan from SeaWorld. During rehearsal for a show, Keto attacked Martinez by grabbing him by the foot, dragging him to the bottom of his tank and then ramming him full speed in the chest. Martinez died of massive internal bleeding at the age of 29. Attacks on humans by orca in the wild are extremely rare and are never fatal. Branchow, Martinez, Dukes and Byrne are the only four people in history to have been killed by orcas in captivity. Of these four, Tilikum was involved in three of the cases. Tilikum was the subject for the acclaimed documentary Blackfish which was released in 2013. After the incident with Branchow, Tilikum continued to live at SeaWorld. Tilikum was a breeder whale and fathered 21 orcas through artificial insemination. Some of Tilikum's carbs were Nair born 1993 and died in 1996, Una 1996 to 2015, Suma 1998 to 2010, Tua, 1999 to present, Takoa 2000 to present, Nakia 2001 to present, Kohana 2002 to present, Akeka 2002 to present, Skyla 2004 to 2021, Malia 2007 to present, Sakari 2010 to present. And Machio, 2010 to present. In 2016 it was announced that Tilikum's health was deteriorating and it was thought that he had a lung infection due to a bacterial pneumonia, a common cause of death in captive whales and dolphins. On January 6 2017 SeaWorld announced that Tilikum had passed away early in the morning. The cause of death was reported as a bacterial infection. And that was the story of Tilikum, the killer whale. You know, the, the the one fact for me that I was really surprised by when I started learning this was that there have only been four people in history killed by killer whales. I always thought that they were really dangerous animals. You know, I, it's in their name, but even just seeing their behavior in the wild and just seeing them hunting other animals like seals, uh, I, just, I, I just assumed they were much more prolific killers of humans, but they're not. Um, They've never killed someone in, pu- in, in in public. They've never killed someone in the wild. There have been, you know, attacks, you know, little nibbles here and there. But they've never killed anyone in, in, in um, I nearly said public again, in the wild. And yet, there have only been four cases of killer whales killing humans um, in captivity. And it blows my mind that 75% of those cases were tilicum. Um, that's not to say, by the way, that there aren't cases of Killer whales attacking humans in captivity that's happened lots of times and if you watch blackfish you can see at least two other examples that i can think of one is uh i think it was a male trainer riding on the back of one of the orca and then a second killer whale jumps jumps out of the water and just lands on top of him and just crushes him and i think he survived but i don't know if he walked again um and there was another incident where um a killer whale grabbed a female trainer by the aunt, by the wrist and was trying to pull her in and and wasn't successful and you can see this killer whale um sorry you can see this woman's wrist just like u-shaped like bent the wrong way so you know they are more aggressive in captivity and to be completely honest and this is my opinion here i kind of don't blame them um it seems really cruel to me to keep keep whales in captivity. Like I'm not one of those people that thinks that all zoos and marine parks are inherently evil. Um, I know that like lots of zoos, like Taronga Zoo for example, a really good uh, a really good example, serve multiple purposes. Yes, it's a zoo where people can come and see the animals as sort of exhibits, but there are a lot, it, it's more of a the other half of that business is that it's a, it's a conservation effort. Um, you know, they, they look after animals, they rehabilitate animals, they also educate the public on animals. Like, I think that a lot of animals uh, who are at risk in the wild for whatever reason, poaching or deforestation, a lot of people don't really care, but when they do get to see them in, up close and personal, they, they care a lot more. I spent um, the beginning of this year a few days at um, Taronga Zoo, um, and uh, yeah, it was great. That they're, they're a really good zoo, and I really like them. Um, so there are there are ethical ways to do it but but killer whales men are just one of the animals that should not be cap, you know kept in captivity it's you know one of the things that proves that to me is the statistic that like virtually every single male killer whale in captivity has a collapsed dorsal fin which is like you know not only ugly to look at it just looks painful um I did a little research on collapsed dorsal fins it it very rarely happens in the wild so it's a phenomenon that it's, it's almost exclusively to captive killer whales um, there are a few theories on why this is one of the leading ones is that the killer whales are um, forced in captivity to spend so much more time above the water either like you know on those ramps where they just sort of sit out of the water um, and you know with their fins out of the out of the water so that the trainers can ride them so apparently the collagen in the in the uh, fins reacts with the air differently. And that's one of the reasons. There's a bunch of other reasons. One of them is that uh, because the orca are forced to swim in such small circles that it flops down. Um, another reason is just like to do with the, the makeup of the water as well. And also just, you know, the, the stress. The stress of being in there. Um, blackfish is such a great documentary to watch there's so much more information about killer whales and tilikum um that, that i just couldn't fit into this episode but you know it it's a heartbreaking documentary it, and it, it is flawed it's not perfect the criticism of the, the sea world levels at this documentary as well as the people who were actually in the documentary um makes me think that it's not a it's not a 100 credible source but it is worth having a watch and making your own decisions um i think like i said in the intro it's it's on stand and it's worth it's worth a watch it makes you really think about <laughs> whether or not you want to go to SeaWorld again i think from memory that SeaWorld has like you know stopped at, at the very least they're not importing any new orca into their into their attractions and the ones that they have i think i you know i doubt that they're going to release them into the wild because i don't think they survive um but you know when they die i don't think that they're going to replace them And i don't think that they have a breeding program anymore either just to end it on a weird note as well by the way (laughs) in blackfeet if you've ever wanted to know what um artificial insemination of a whale uh looks like part of that process you get to see that um It's disgusting. I didn't know what a whale's penis looked like, and boy, that was a simpler time in my life, a few days ago, when I didn't know what a whale dick was. Um, You can't go back from something like that, so if you are going to watch this documentary, just know you're going to see a whale penis, and it's going to change your life, and maybe in in a good way, maybe in a bad way. For me, it was a bad way, because I can't get that weird three meter long worm out of my head. (laughs) Howie Zowie, another twenty twenty one episode down the gullet. Uh, Tilikum the killer whale. You know, I I think what I'm going to do is just tell you my favorite fact from each episode. The one that always gets me, and it's actually probably the when people talk to me about this podcast, they say, "What's your like? What's uh, interesting animal fact?" And this is the one I usually give, and it is from the Tilikum episode. It's the it's the fact. I'm sure you you just heard me talk about it that. In human history, there've been four killer whale uh, fatalities on humans, and Th- Tilikum was responsible for three of them. 75% of the people killed by killer whales were killed by this one specific whale, and the only other one was also in a sea world or a water resort or something like that. So, to me, that is the most interesting fact that I've learned these this first, you know, 18 months of doing the show. Um, it always surprises me how, you know, like things like, you know, killer whales, we, we hear the word killer whale and you assume without knowing anything about them that they are fatal to humans. They've never killed anyone in, in the wild. They may have injured people in the wild, incidentally or on purpose, but they don't kill. Um, so, so yeah, there you go. Uh, speaking of elephants that, you know, kill in captivity, we're going to talk about Tyke the Elephant next. Now, this was a much more recent episode. Um, I'm going to scroll and find where that was. E- episode 13. So that was this year in March. Um, we talk about Tyke and Mary, the rogue elephant. So uh, Tyke was, I'm trying to remember correctly, These this was two elephants um, in, in captivity. I think one was in a circus in Hawaii in the 90s. I think that one might have been tyke um that that got out and uh yeah caused a bunch of havoc and and uh was was shot to death and the other one was uh mary the whale uh mary the elephant that i think they hanged we're going to listen to this episode now and we'll find out if that's correct so here you go everybody tyke and mary the rogue elephants yes uh this episode was supposed to come out last week i'm very sorry i had plans to do it but then a uh kind of cool career opportunity landed in my lap uh And I had to take it. And then, right after that, I got COVID and I didn't have a voice. So, uh, I apologize for anyone who was just on the edge of their seat waiting for this episode, which I, you know, conservatively estimate 40,000 people. We're waiting for this episode and i apologize to each and every one of you um the other thing is if you are noticing some audio differences one yeah i'm just getting over COVID, so my voice is a little shitty uh, and two um i'm recording from my home office today rather than the bedroom to see if there's any difference in the audio quality because honestly it's much more comfortable in here um but it's a room full of glass windows and i think that that wouldn't be good but we'll see this is like a little experiment. Um, so yeah, this episode today, I don't—I have, have no idea what the title is going to be. Um, it's a little bit different uh, to a normal episode. We are not just talking about one animal, we are talking about two. Uh, two elephants, both of them female, both of them uh performed in circuses and both of them uh, killed people Um, they are not man eaters of course they're not Uh, I have a very basic understanding of biology but uh, you know from watching walking with dinosaurs when I was five I had a pretty good grasp of what a carnivore was and what a herbivore was and elephants they're herbivores they don't eat meat Um, I I don't even know if they can I don't know if they maybe they want to maybe they just haven't been offered if you're a zookeeper listening, and you have like a stick of salami in your pocket that was meant for like, uh, well, like, f- you know, for one of the um, uh, uh, honey badges, and you're feeding the elephants today, like, how much would I have to bribe you to just sort of like, g- give the elephant a sniff of that little salami and see if it's interested at all? Um, probably don't do that. I, I don't want you to get fired. I don't want the elephant to eat salami i just think that's morally dubious i can't believe we're even still talking about this mr zookeeper it's weird that you brought it up any hootie in the blowfish <laughs> old reference um yeah we are going to jump into the story now uh so yeah please sit back and uh enjoy well don't enjoy it <laughs> i say that a lot um two sort of tragic stories uh, about two beautiful elephants named tyke and mary Tyke was a female African bush elephant born in Mozambique sometime in 1973. Eventually, Tyke would grow up to perform with the Circus International of Honolulu in Hawaii. While thousands of elephants would perform in circuses around the world, Tyke is notable because of what happened on August 20th, 1994. Before this event, in 1994, Tyke had been reportedly involved in up to three other serious incidents involving dangerous human contact. On the 21st of April, 1993, Tyke escaped during a performance at the Altoona, Pennsylvania, Jaffa Shrine Center. She burst through the front doors and remained unrestrained for over an hour. The rampage caused more than $14,000 in damage. A statement attained by a circus worker the following day claimed that Tyke had also viciously attacked a tiger trainer while the circus was in Altoona. On July 23, 1993, Tyke, quote, "...ran amok at the North Dakota State Fair in Minot, North Dakota, trampling and injuring a, and injuring a handler and frightening, and frightening the crowd as she ran uncontrolled for 25 minutes." In addition to the escape from Altoona, the attack on the tiger trainer, and the trampling in North Dakota, Canadian law enforcement documents state that an elephant named Tyke, possibly the same Tyke involved in these incidents, was performing with the Tarzan Zabini Circus. Quote, The elephant handler was observed beating the single-tusk African elephant in public to the point where the elephant was screaming and bending down on three legs to avoid being hit. Even when the handler walked by the elephant after this, the elephant screamed and veered away, demonstrating his fear from his presence. On August 20th, 1994, during a performance with the circus in Hawaii, Tyke killed two trainers, escaped the building and ran wild through the streets of Honolulu. I'm gonna play some audio of some clips of the event and then I'll talk through what actually happened. incident began when Tyke trampled and grievously injured Dallas Beckwith, her groomer. She threw him around multiple times before her trainer, Alan Campbell, tried to intercede. Tyke knocked Campbell down, dragged him around before finally crushing him to death underneath her massive trunk. Taika then left the two men, stampeded through the panicking crowd, and charged out of the arena onto the streets outside. She almost killed a publicist named Steve Hirano, who saw the elephant attempting to leave the car park and attempted to keep a gate closed to prevent her from exiting. The elephant attempted to trample Hirano but was forced to flee after sustaining multiple handgun gunshots from a nearby police officer. The police chased Tyke on foot and by car for almost an hour. The police then opened fire with handguns, repeaters and rifles. The elephant was shot more than 86 times before she finally collapsed from her wounds. Zoo officials administered a lethal injection. This dose, however, didn't kill her. She was shot once again through the heart and died. Following the rampage of 1994, Tyke became a symbol of circus tragedies and animal rights. Lawsuits were filed against the city of Honolulu, the state of Hawaii, the Circus International, and Tykes owner, John Cunio Jr. Lawyer William Fenton Sink sued Cuneo on behalf of multiple plaintiffs, including the young children who suffered psychological distress from witnessing the shooting of the elephant, as well as the death of two circus employees. The lawsuits were settled out of court, and the monetary details of the decisions were sealed from public knowledge. In honor of Sink's work in the case, Animal Rights Hawaii renamed its Order of the Innocent Award to the William Fenton Sink Award for Defense of Animals. Alan Campbell's autopsy revealed that he died from several internal injuries, including major skull and chest fractures. The Tyke Incident inspired legislation on local levels in Hawaii and abroad, while California Congressman Sam Farr introduced legislation HR 2323 into the House of Representatives in 1999 and again in 2012. Following her death, Tyke was loaded onto a flatbed truck and disposed in Waymanalo Gulch Landfill, near Nakakuli. Mary, otherwise known as Big Mary or Murderous Mary, was a female Asian elephant that was born in the wild but raised in captivity and performed at Sparks World Famous Show's Circus. Mary, at this point a five-ton elephant, would become famous on the 12th of September, 1916 in the great state of Tennessee. Late in the summer of that year, Louis Reed, Mary's regular trainer, had to leave the show. On September 11th, a homeless man named Red Eldridge, who had recently gained employment as a clerk at the Riverside Hotel, was hired by the circus as an elephant trainer. The next day, despite having no experience or qualifications, Eldridge successfully led the elephants on parade riding atop Mary's back. However, this success was short-lived. Shortly after the parade, Mary went into a rage, picked up Eldridge with her trunk and hurled him into a drink stand before stepping on his head, killing him. Eldridge died after one day of employment at the circus. A contemporary newspaper account from the Johnson City staff said that Mary collided its vice-like trunk about Eldridge's body, lifted him ten feet in the air, and then dashed him with a fury to the ground, and with the full force of her beastly fury is said to have sunk her giant tusks entirely through his body. The animal then trampled the dying form of Eldridge as if seeking a murderous triumph, then, with a sudden swing of her massive foot, hurled the body into the crowd. There are different accounts of what happened moments before the attack. Some claim that Mary attempted to eat a piece of watermelon after the show and Red beat her as punishment. Others claim that there was no provocation and the animal may have just been bored. In the aftermath of the attack, the crowd became incensed. Most accounts agree that she calmed down after the attack and did not charge the audience, who by this point had started chanting, Kill the elephant! Let's kill it! blacksmith henchcocks fired his 32 caliber rifle five times at mary and later sheriff Gallahan quote knocked chips off her hide a little with his 45 but with little effect meanwhile leaders in nearby towns threatened to not allow the circus to visit their towns if mary was included the owner charlie sparks decided reluctantly to kill mary publicly he's quoted as saying a human life is something i don't want charged against me if people in the business get hurt that's our outlook but with an outsider that's different. The next day, a foggy and rainy September 13th, 1916, Mary was loaded onto a boxcar and transported by train to Unicoi County, Tennessee. A crowd of over 2,500 people, including most of the town's children, assembled in the Clinchfield Railway Yard. A chain was hung from a railcar mounted industrial derrick between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. The elephant was then hung from the neck The first attempt resulted in the chain breaking, causing Mary to fall and break her hip as dozens of children fled in terror. The now severely wounded elephant died during a second attempt and was later buried beside the tracks. A veterinarian examined Mary after the hanging and determined she had a very infected tooth. It was then theorized that Red Eldridge must have accidentally prodded her in this exact spot while trying to prevent her from eating the watermelon. And there you go, that is Mary the Elephant and Tyke the Elephant, Um, two stories which I uh, was surprised to see how many like parallels there were considering they were uh, over a hundred years apart, Um, yeah, very sad, Um, I remember hearing, I think in Australia when I was younger there was a story about a dude who uh, was killed by an elephant. In, in a circus here, uh, the elephant sat on him, and he just died. Um, I don't laugh because, well, it, it, look. Okay, let's get real. It's a little funny, right? Like, it's 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 not funny. It's a little funny. Like, when you read that death certificate, cause of death, sat on by an elephant. It's not funny for the guy's family, obviously. But just, are we gonna just lie to each other? Are we just gonna sit here and lie are we gonna pretend like that's not objectively a funny thing to have happened i don't know what happened to the elephant afterwards if it was put down which i you know it probably was then yeah that's not funny um but yeah these two stories kind of not funny at all especially the type the elephant one i think that that was uh maybe i'm biased because it was more recent this is in 1994. um those events beforehand the one where he attacked the tiger trainer and escaped in altoona in in north dakota they happened um a few months before i was born so it's only 28 years ago so it is quite recent mary the elephant by the way uh you you may have seen a photo and if you follow me on instagram at manhunters, man eaters not man hunters oh my god covid i'm so tired um The image I'm going to post for this episode is a very famous and highly publicized um, photo of Mary being hung, being hanged, um, apparently, uh, let me just get this right, I want to get this right, um, the authenticity of this, uh, photo of her death was disputed years later by Argosy Magazine, um, I, I don't know, it looks pretty real to me, you can be the decider, um, otherwise there's no photo of this event, um, yeah obviously really sad what happened to tyke what happened to mary um there is a debate should these animals be in circuses i i think no (laughs) i just don't think there's any reason for it um i i personally don't think circuses are that great anyway (laughs) i have some friends involved in circus so i have to be careful what i say um i think like the acrobatics that's cool acrobatics and like what the circus delays that oh, what am i doing circus delay is that how you pronounce it um that that stuff's cool the part where they like you know bring out some elephants and some lions and whip them and hold a chair at them that's not cool and i think that's a really outdated form of um of entertainment and i don't actually think anyone really enjoys it anymore in the days before youtube where you, it's like when else are you gonna see a freaking elephant i get it um but nowadays <coughs> I don't get it, man. Anyway, um, that's the episode. Thank you so much for joining me on Maneaters, not Manhunters as I previously uh, made a mistake. If you have been bothered this episode by my annoying voice or my lack of energy, I apologize. Um, But don't blame me. Blame um, the lab that leaked COVID in China. That's right. I'm a lab leak kind of guy. I don't think it was a bat. I don't think it was a bat, I think it was a leak in a lab. Uh, I'm one of those conspiracy theorists. (laughs) This is going to get demonetized really quickly, isn't it? The whole thing, the whole thing is a bad idea. No, I don't, I don't know what I think. You know, elephants, my favourite animals growing up as as a kid, uh, and uh, of course we did... Talk about another elephant, Osama, uh, the elephant, uh, much more recently, and that was a pretty crazy story as well. But yeah, Tyke and Mary the elephants. Um, There is also an elephant that I do want to cover in the future, which was the elephant that was, you know, allegedly electrocuted to death by Thomas Edison, uh, which was not actually Thomas Edison. But you know, that's that's quite a, you know. Uh, misconception by the public. So, okay, we've got two more um, stories that we're going to tackle in our first part of our best ofs of 2021 and 2022. This next one was probably the first kind of um, what would you call it? Like uh, mystery episode or semi-crypted episode. We're talking about The Beast of Gévaudan. This was episode 15 from the 4th of April of 2022. Um, The Beast of Gévaudan was a unknown animal, although it was likely some kind of wolf or wolf dog hybrid that killed uh, hundreds of people. And it is on the, um, the all time heavy hitter list. Um, the, you know, definitely on the top 10 of the, you know, serial killer animals. Um, so the beast of Gévaudan, probably one of the, uh, most, what would you call it? Most historical stories that we're going to talk about as well. So, uh, here you go. Uh, the, the semi-crypted story of the beast of Gévaudan. Look, we did it. I'm not gonna beat around the bush, everybody. We frickin' did it. Episode 15, put your hands together. Yeah. Producer, add like a cheering sound effect onto the track. Producer, go. (laughs) That's right, there is no producer of this show. I Forgot that. Oh, I just realized I'm the producer of the show. Man, this is gonna suck. Oh, well, if you're still listening, stay listening because even though i might be a dud today's story is anything but if you were listening to last week's episode you would have heard me tease this story a little bit uh essentially i, I prefaced it with with a- within a little anecdote essentially I-, I like to claim that this is a true crime podcast but it's a lot different from its other contemporaries uh because well one all the killers are real animals as you heard from the terrific tagline but two you know there is a there's a lack of mystery and people have said that to me they say James you know I love the show can you really say it's a true crime podcast when there's no element of mystery involved and I take that feedback seriously I really do so what I have done is I have searched the history books I have scoured the internet I have absolutely wrecked Wikipedia to try and find an animal story it's a mystery and boy howdy have I found something for you today we are talking about the beast of Jevodan, and uh, yes, as you have probably guessed from that, it is a French story. This story takes place in France. Uh, there are a lot of French names and places and things. And you know, one thing you may have gleaned from listening to the last fourteen episode episodes is that pronouncing <laughs> pronouncing foreign place names and people is like my Achilles' heel. You know, it's not my strong suit. But I'm gonna do my best, you know. So if you're French and you're listening, obligatory warning and preemptive apology. I'm probably also gonna try at one point to do a French accent, uh, which is, you know, I haven't even done it yet, but it's, it's almost guaranteed to not be good. Uh, luckily, as my nana used to say, Jimmy, it's impossible to be racist against French people. Uh, that's that really hit me, huh? Sorry, I'm crying. <laughs> she really did say that she really did say it's impossible to be racist to french people (laughs) she also said what are you some kind of gay uh it was was a confusing birthday party but uh, my nana aside this is a terrific story full of intrigue Uh, the the key to the mystery here is that even today in in 2022 We are still, we still have no confirmation about what this animal actually was. It killed hundreds of people in France, Uh, they had a body, we still do not have conclusive evidence about what this animal was. Um, There are lots of theories which I'll go through at the end of the episode, I will share with you my theory about what I think this animal was as well. Uh, But first, yeah look, sit back, relax. Uh, Guys gals my non-binary pals ladies and gentlemen caucasian and melanin. This is the beast of Gévaudan In early summer of 1764 the body of a 14 year old girl named Jeannette Boulay was found in a field She'd been working in the fields when something attacked her Whatever this creature was it tore her apart limb from Lim. Shortly before this incident, another woman named Marie Jeannet Vallée, who was feeding her cattle in the eastern part of Givaudan, saw a glimpse of a crazed animal. The beast dashed towards her. Thankfully for her, the bulls in her herd charged at the beast, causing it to withdraw after attempting a second charge. These attempts happened in a region of southern France known as Givaudin. A generally peaceful province, nestled within the hills, medieval towns dotted the countryside. While the outside world was slowly modernizing, the isolation of Gévaudan meant that it was a few decades behind the rest of France. A month after Bollet's death, another girl, this time a 15 year old, was mauled and killed. A week later, a teenage boy was left in pieces after a similar attack. The killer was not satisfied. In September, a woman, a 30-year-old peasant, was watching the sun set. She felt a pair of eyes watching her. She attempted to run for help, but it was too late. The woman was found half-eaten on her own doorstep. Throughout the year, more and more attacks were reported across the area. Very soon, fear gripped the local peasantry, and rumors swelled that a horrific beast was preying on men, women, and children as they tended the farms in the forests of Givaudan. It was noted that this beast seemed to prefer to attack the victims' heads and necks, often decapitating heads, mutilating faces beyond recognition, and ripping throats out while the victims still lived. By Christmas, many villagers believed that it may have been a pair of animals behind the killings. They suspected this due to the incredibly high number of attacks and killings in such a short period of time, and because so many of the attacks were thought to have occurred almost simultaneously. Some accounts point to a theory that the creature may have been with another such animal, whilst other reports state the beast was accompanied by its own offspring. Peasants claimed that the beast looked like a large wolf. Wolves were common in France at this time, but what made this beast stand apart, aside from its enormous stature, was its rust-tinged fur a long thin massive tail a black stripe along its spine and a snout similar to that of a boar whatever this animal was locals were equal parts terrified and vengeful commoners weren't permitted to own firearms and attempts at hunting the beast with spears swords and arrows proved ineffective attacks continued and dozens of people lost their lives in a grisly manner in the following months on July 12, 1765, Jacques Portafax and several of his friends were viciously attacked by the beast. After several charges, the group managed to drive it back using their numbers to overwhelm the beast. The story of their encounter finally made its way to King Louis XV, who awarded 300 liras to Portafax and 350 more to be shared among his friends. Portafax was also rewarded with an education at the taxpayer's expense. The king then decreed that the French government would find, hunt, and kill the beast of Gevaudan. The Clermont Prince Dragoon's first captain, Duhamel, and his troops were dispatched to Gevaudan almost immediately. Despite his passionate attempts, Duhamel's efforts were stymied by the local herders and farmers' refusal to cooperate. He came close to shooting the beast on multiple occasions, but was thwarted by his guards' ineptness. Duhamel became enraged when a group of villagers were not present and ready as the Beast crossed the Trio River. Captain Duhamel was compelled to stand down and return to his headquarters after Louis XV decided to send two professional wolf hunters, Jean-Charles Marc-Antonin Denevelle and his son, Jean-Francois. Cooperation with Denevelle was impossible because their methodologies were so dissimilar. Duhamel organized wolf hunting groups whilst Denevelle and his son felt the Beast could only be killed by stealth. On February 17, 1765, father and son Denevelle arrived in Clermont-Ferrand with eight bloodhounds that had been trained in wolf hunting. The two sought for Eurasian wolves for the following four months, believing that one or more of these animals was the beast. When the attacks continued, the Denevelles were replaced by Francois in June 1765. On June 22nd, the King's Lone Arbus carri- Carrier and Lieutenant of the Hunt Antonin, often confused with his son Antonin Del Bernou, arrived in the area. Antonin managed to kill a giant grey wolf, measuring 80cm tall, 1.75m in length and weighing over 60kg on September 20th or 21st. The animal was thought to be an unusually huge wolf. Officially, Antonin stated, we proclaim that as evidenced by this report signed in our hand, we have never seen a large wolf comparable to this one. As a result, we believe this is the dreadful beast that caused so much havoc. Survivors of the attack recognized the animal as the perpetrator after noticing the scars on its body caused by the victims defending themselves. The wolf was stuffed and delivered to a nearby zoo. Anthony's son was lauded as a hero in Versailles, Antonin remained in the woods to track down the beast's female companion and her two growing offspring. Antonin was successful in killing the female wolf as well as a pup that appeared to be larger than its mother. The pup looked to have a double pair of dewclaws, which is a congenital deformality seen in the Bas Rouge or Beauceron canine breed. The other puppy was shot and hit and is believed that it perished while fleeing between the rocks. Antonin returned to Paris with a considerable sum of money, not to mention renown, honours, and awards. For months, the locals celebrated the slaying of the beast. However, on December 2nd, two youngsters aged 6 and 12 were attacked, indicating that the beast was still alive. The beast attempted to capture the youngest, but the eldest lad successfully fought it off. Successful attacks followed soon after, and several of the shepherds saw that the beast displayed no fear of livestock at all, stark contrast to when the beast was scared off by a pair of bulls. A dozen more people are said to have died as a result of these attacks. A local hunter named Jean Chastel is credited with killing the beast that ended the attacks on June 19th, 1767, during a hunt organized by a local lord. In 1889, an abbot related an enlightening oral story that suggested the pious hero, Chastel, shot the beast after reciting his prayers, although historical records contradict this. A French writer later told a story of how large caliber bullets were forged by melting down the Virgin Mary's medals. This was also proved to be inaccurate. The body of the beast was subsequently transported to a castle, where a surgeon performed the post-mortem. His report is now known as the Marin Report on the Beast. The stomach of the animal was discovered to contain the remains of its latest victim, when it was opened during an autopsy. There are several theories related to the species of the beast. According to modern scholars, public hysteria at the time of the attacks contributed to the widespread myths that supernatural beasts roam Gévaudan. But deaths attributed to the beast were more likely the work of a number of wolves or a pack of wolves. In 2001, a French naturalist proposed that the red-coloured mastiffs that belonged to Jean Chastel sired the beast and its resistance to arrows may have been due to it wearing an armoured hide of a young boar, thus also accounting for its unusual colour. Wolves were a major cause of concern throughout this time period, not only in France, but throughout all of Europe, with tens of thousands of deaths attributed to them in the 18th century alone. During the the Gévaudan frenzy in the spring of 1765, a separate sequence of attacks happened near the communities of Soissons, northeast of Paris, where an individual wolf killed at least four people over the course of two days before being hunted down and killed by a man with a pitchfork. In rural areas of Western and Central Europe, such instances were common. The Marin Report describes the creature as a wolf of unusually large proportions. Despite the widely held interpretation based on most of the historical research that the beast was a wolf or another wild canid, several alternative theories have been suggested, including that the beast was a lion, a dog, a wolf-dog hybrid, or even a striped hyena from Africa. In 2021, François-Louis Pélecelet, described appearance of the animal and specific details of behavior, and what can be inferred about the historical distribution, argued that the beast encounters could most likely be blamed on the Italian wolf, Canis Lupus Italicus. One contemporary writer claims that it's very likely the beast was actually a lion that escaped from a wealthy Frenchman's menagerie, or zoo, and and was not reported to the authorities. In a book written by Marc Saint-Val, the author suspects the beast to be several thylacines, or Tasmanian tigers, imported in France from Australia. Regardless of what animal the beast actually was, at the end of the day the fact remains that between 1764 and 1767, the beast of Gévaudan had rampaged through an area spanning 80 to 90 kilometers squared. Over this time, there had been 610 attacks, resulting in 500 deaths and 49 injuries. 98 of the victims killed were partially eaten. The Beast has had a considerable impact on media over the last 250 years, appearing in both medieval and contemporary literature, as well as being mentioned or referenced in modern television and screen projects such as Teen Wolf, The Wolfman, and Animal X. Netflix is currently producing a feature film based on the events in Jevodan. And that was The Beast of Jevaudan, very good, Wee oui, wee. Oui. I love saying that, Jevodan. Uh, yeah, okay. We got one more story today uh, that we're going to look back on, and it is uh, going from one of the most you know historical stories, going to one of the more, more recent uh, stories in in history. This one is the Taylor Mitchell Coyote Attack. This was episode seventeen of the Man in His Podcast. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the Taylor Mitchell. It was. It's a very sad story because it was you know quite recent. Um, an interesting fact about this one is that. It, Taylor Mitchell is only one of two people who've ever been killed by a coyote. Um, It just doesn't happen. Um, And the other one, of course, and you'll hear it in the story, is it was a baby. It was a child. Um, She's the only adult that's been attacked and killed by coyotes ever in in recorded history. So we're going to learn a lot about Taylor Mitchell. So uh, yeah, the, the very sad story right now of Taylor Mitchell and the Taylor Mitchell coyote attack. We're here to talk about it, and today we have uh, quite a sad story, actually, uh, compared to a lot of the other stories we've told, a relatively recent one. um, This one taking place in 2009, so less than, you know, 15 years ago, of course. Um, And what makes it sadder as well is that the person who passed away um, was sort of just beginning her life and was showing real promise and had a great career ahead of her and had a great life ahead of her. Um, And so, yeah, her, her story is quite uh, emotional and taxing, but we will go through it all. Um, it's notable for a few reasons. Uh, one of which is that it's, uh, well, the animal in question is a coyote. And, uh, you know, actually the majority of the U listeners are from the United States. We don't have coyotes in Australia, obviously. Um, I'm sure that you might think we have dingoes everywhere, but that's not even true. We, we don't have them, uh, in most of the country. Coyotes, as I'm to understand it, exist, uh, all over, North America, um, and they're kind of a common occurrence, uh, and I could be completely wrong, but I feel like I've heard stories of coyotes even, like, venturing into cities in, uh, more rural states, uh, not that there are coyotes in New York City, although I, <laughs> I don't know, there's some pretty big rats, that's pretty close, um, so anyway, we're going to talk about, uh, Taylor Mitchell and her, uh, <laughs> very sad interaction, um, with a coyote. So, this is, I don't know what we're going to call this episode. Let's just bookmark it as uh, this is the Taylor Mitchell coyote incident. By the time you see her coming up from behind, you better watch out to run to. You just heard the voice and the music of Canadian folk musician Taylor Mitchell. In 2009, Taylor was fatally injured in the only known instance of a coyote killing an adult human being. She was just 19 years old. Mitchell was born Taylor Josephine Stephanie Luciao. Emily and Ray Luciao were her parents. She grew up in a small suburban neighbourhood in Toronto, Canada. Taylor began performing in her mid-teens after graduating from a Toby Koch School of the Arts with a concentration in musical theatre. She decided to pursue a career as a singer and songwriter and adopted the stage name Mitchell. She had released a four-track EP in 2007 and she independently released an album titled For Your Consideration in March of 2009. Guest musicians on the album included Justin Rutledge, Lynn Mills, Susie Vinnick, John Dismore, and Michael Johnston. The album received positive reviews from Exclaim, with Eric Tom describing her as definitely old-school, if not world-weary, while Now Toronto described it as sounding like it comes from someone from a completely different generation. In June 2009, she was invited to perform at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Reaction from The Roots music community and radio stations was positive, and she began working on new material. A contributor on the album, Justin Rutledge, later described Mitchell as having written beyond her years. She didn't provide answers as so many of her age try to do. There was no preciousness about her, instead she just asked questions. Taylor travelled to the Maritime Provinces to tour the surrounding towns as a way of promoting her new record. The tour began in October 23rd of 2009. Taylor was nominated for a Canadian Folk Music Award as Young Performer of the Year. What turned out to be her final performance was in Lucasville, near Halifax. She then had two days before her next concert in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Finding herself with some spare time before her next concert, Mitchell, an avid nature walker and environmentalist, decided to enjoy her beautiful surroundings by going on a hike. She went to Cape Brenton, Highlands National Park, on the sunny afternoon of October 27th, 2009. At around 2.45pm, an American couple was walking the track and passed by Mitchell who was walking in the opposite direction. For reasons unknown to the couple and to investigators, Mitchell doubled back after going a short distance off the walking track and came back down, possibly intending to return to her car. Investigators speculate that she may have already been stalked by her attackers by this point. 17 minutes later, at 3.02pm, a second American couple named Mike and Gail were heading up the access road towards the car park. As they approached, they moved out of the way of two coyotes that were walking towards them along the road. One of the hikers photographed the coyotes with his camera before heading directly to the car park. Brent Patterson, a professor in Trent University's environmental and life sciences graduate program and a research scientist with the Ontario Ministry of National Resources, later commented that the two coyotes in the male hiker's photo showed an extraordinary lack of fear, with one displaying a dominant attitude towards humans. It was later confirmed that these same coyotes intercepted Mitchell on the access road six minutes later, while Mike and Gail heard what they thought could either be animal howlings, or a young woman screaming in the distance. The American middle aged couple reported these commotions in a telegraph box at the car park. At first, Eric Munts, the park's research conservation supervisor, and Michael O'Brien, the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources Wildlife Resource Manager, mistook the reports of an animal attack suspect for a black bear. They soon, however, realised it was a group of coyotes four more hikers arrived in the car park after hearing suspected screams in the distance. They began to find Mitchell's personal stuff including her keys and a tiny knife after just a few minutes of walking up the access road. The small knife was believed to have been used by her in an attempt to defend herself as she was forced back up the access road onto the skyline trail. As the hikers approached the trail start they noticed the shredded bits of bloodied clothing and a considerable amount of blood on the floor. The entrance to a washroom in a clearing was also covered in blood. Mitchell was discovered nearby in the woods at 3.25pm, with a coyote standing right over her. The coyote moved away from her when three young men charged at it repeatedly. Mitchell was conscious and able to communicate with her rescuers. Until a Royal Canadian mounted police officer fired a shotgun at it, the coyote remained close by, growling and unfazed by human interaction. Mitchell was bitten all over her body, with her leg and head receiving the most serious wounds. She was evacuated to Queen Elizabeth II Health Science Centre in critical condition after being taken to Sacred Heart Community Health Centre in Camp by paramedics. She died of blood loss in the hospital. She was laid to rest at Greenwood Cemetery in Owen Sound, Ontario. It's extremely rare, and in this case, it was fatal. A Toronto folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. to CNV's John Musselman reports she was hiking in the Maritimes when it happened. Her stage name was Taylor Mitchell, a 19-year-old Toronto resident who friends and former teachers say was passionate about singing and songwriting. You know, she had a, an ability to, uh, to sing from the heart in a way that kind of transcended how old she was and, and her life experience. Mitchell's promising career was cut short yesterday when she was mauled by coyotes while hiking in Cape Breton Highlands National Park. She died this morning in a Halifax hospital. Wildlife specialists speculated that Mitchell may have made contact by attempting to feed the coyotes or by disturbing a den that had babies. The coyotes may have been larger and bolder than normal coyotes because they were crosses with wolves or domestic dogs, rabid, famished or protecting cadaver among other theories. None of these theories, however, were later proven true, prompting a rethinking of the possible risk of coyote assaults on people. Mitchell may have inadvertently prompted predatory behavior by fleeing. However, a coyote may have been behind her when she was challenged by the oncoming ones, according to experts. Warden scoured the area where five or six coyotes were reported to live for the, animal attack- for the attacking animal, as is customary practice when an animal remains at large after killing a human. Mitchell's mother published a statement indicating that her daughter would not want the coyotes to be exterminated as a result of her death. She said, We take a calculated risk when spending time in nature's fold. It's the wildlife's terrain, she wrote. When the decision had been made to kill the pack of coyotes, clearly. I clearly heard. When the decision had been made to kill the pack of coyotes, I clearly heard Taylor's voice say, Please don't. This is their space. She wouldn't have wanted their demise, especially as a result of her own. Nevertheless, a female Cody that was acting aggressively was killed by a warden keeping watch at the Wash House location hours after the incident, while the trail was closed to the public. Three more were caught in leg hole traps and killed within one kilometer of the Skyline Trail before a large male weighing 42 pounds or 19 kilograms was dispatched five kilometers away at, on November 14th. According to forensic evidence and Mitchell's blood on their coats, three of the carcasses including the first and last accounted for, were linked to the attack on Mitchell. The large male coyote found standing over Mitchell was the same as the dominant lead coyote photographed on the access road. Coat markings in the photographs identified its carcass, which also contained pellets from the shotgun of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable who fired while on the scene. The dead coyotes that were not linked to the attack could have been the assailant's pack-mates. Both the large male and female coyotes were connected to the other attack implicated coyote, thus they could have been a mating couple. Half a month later, a coyote stealthed up behind a couple walking in the park in mid-November 2009, approaching so close that the man whacked it on the head with his walking stick. Coyotes have the ability to reproduce swiftly, so a mass cull would likely have had little effect, or the opposite of the desired effect according to park conservation officials and experts. This logic argues that animals removed from the local gene pool by a cull will have had the same fear of humans as coyotes who escaped being caught or killed. The province of Nova Scotia issued a $20 bounty on coyotes in April 2010, but it did not extend to the park. Visitors who sighted coyotes were requested to report it to officials. A 16-year-old girl who went camping with her parents at Broad Cove in Ingonish was attacked twice on the head by a coyote 11 months after Mitchell's death. Coyotes were frequently in close contact with humans, according to research studies. Individual coyotes that have not been conditioned to shun humans using non-lethal aversion tactics are usually killed. Mitchell's mother founded the Taylor Mitchell Legacy Trust as a memorial, which is affiliated with the David Suzuki Foundation. The trust encourages community outreach for music slash creative expression, as well as an education about habitat preservation, human-wildlife interaction in both natural and urban settings, and safety precautions. Taylor Mitchell is one of only two confirmed deaths by a coyote attack. She remains the only adult and only Canadian fatality, the other death was that of Kelly Keene, a three-year-old girl from California. Kelly Keene, aged three years old when she died, was left alone on August 26, 1981, while her mother Kathy conducted routine, regular chores. Kelly was watching educational television programs in the family's living room in Glendale, California's Chevy Chase Canyon neighborhood, when she let herself at the front door and stepped onto the driveway, where she was confronted by an urban coyote. Her father, Robert, quickly came running, chasing the coyote off, and rushed Kelly to the Greendale Adventist Medical Center, where she was in surgery for four hours before she died. The cause of death was determined to be a broken neck and blood loss as a result of the coyote attack. She is buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. And that was the Taylor Mitchell coyote attack um, yeah, really, <laughs> really sad story, I listened to, um, For Your Consideration, which is Taylor Mitchell's, uh, album, it's all on YouTube, um, you can listen to it now if you like, um, all the comments are turned off, I imagine, because all anyone would be talking about was the coyote attack, but if you take that out of it, she was quite a talented singer-songwriter, um, I'm really into the folk music, it, I know, like, uh, she reminds me of my friend Jemima, her the way her music sounds. Um, she had a beautiful voice. I would I would really recommend listening to it if you're into that kind of music. Even if you're not, there's something about like the, <sighs> these animal attacks that we cover can sometimes feel so removed from reality. Um, like they're just stories, they're just made up stories, but they're not. They happen to real people and hearing the voice and the music of someone who passed away in one of these stories, uh, it kind of changed the way I view this episode, um, yeah, deeply sad, uh, but also fascinating, the only adult that was ever killed by coyotes in history, um, as far as we know, it hasn't happened since, uh, I guess recorded history, who knows what happened to cavemen and women, um, yeah, and of course Kelly Keen, the three-year-old girl, was also killed, uh, about 40 years ago, um, Yep, coyotes are, you know, I thought coyotes weren't that scary. I always thought they were like, uh, I don't know, like cats almost. Like, you just kick them and they run away. Like, I I didn't think that they were aggressive anyway, but I guess not. It could have been for any reason. She could have disturbed a den. She could have, I don't know, provoked them in some way. But regardless of what she did, um, it was obviously not intended. And, uh, yeah, she, she paid for that mistake with her life, very sadly. Um... Yeah, a really sad story there, guys. Um, I think I said in the episode she reminds me of. I have a lot of female friends who are musicians, and she just she reminds me a lot of them. Um, so it is quite sad. She was a nature lover. She wasn't doing anything wrong, really. She was just going for a walk. Um, a lot of these man eater stories, um, you know, there's no blame to place because they're animals. You can't blame an animal for something like this they don't have the capacity to be evil or anything like that sometimes you find out that like uh the human was at fault because they were you know encroaching on habitat or blah 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 doing something else keeping an animal in captivity this is one of those sad unfortunate cases where just she wasn't doing anything wrong man she was just going for a walk uh so yeah that was the of Mitchell coyote attack and with that um we're going to end our first part of our best of 2021 and 2022 thank you for joining us today and listening to those stories and bearing through this god this is going to be a long episode uh if we include all of the scratch of the day segments which i think we probably will um So yeah, thank you for joining me for the first part of the best of 2021 and 2022. Uh, Joining me next week, it'll be episode 40. So it kind of caps off the year in a nice round way. Uh, The final week of the year, episode 40 of the Man It Is podcast, the final episode of 2022. It'll be the best of 2021 and 2022 part two. Uh, So coming out next week, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, My name is James, as always. It's James. I haven't changed it. It's not going anywhere. You can call me Jimby though. You can call me whatever you like. I'm not very sensitive. I do have one book bugaboo. Uh, You can't call me anything that starts with the letter uh, Q. It's a disgusting letter. If your name is Quentin or Quinn or Quenelope, I don't know what to tell you, man. Unsub. Unsub for sure. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Have a great Christmas. I think this is coming out soon-ish. So have a great Christmas. Uh, And yeah, stay safe because as we've learned from all these stories today... It's a jungle out there.